Well, good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church on this first Sunday in Advent, 27th of November, 2022. Sorry. The season of Advent is a time of preparation for the celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ at Christmas. And for Christians, it is also a reminder of the coming of Christ in the hearts of believers and also a time of preparation for his second coming. Uh, Julia Davis will come now and read the passage for today. Thank you, Julia. Good morning, everybody. The reading is taken from Acts chapter 15, verses 36, through to chapter 16, verse 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we reclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And there rose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came also to Derb and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And then they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Nicaea, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing through Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the woman, the women who had come there. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptised, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, 
come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I encourage you to turn back with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15, let me add to Jonathan's welcome. It's lovely to have you with us today, and what a privilege for us to be able to open the Word of God, to openly proclaim it, and to hear what God has to say. The book of Acts is really the story of the early church. After Jesus had been raised from the dead and ascended back into heaven, what did his people do? How did there come to be Christians right across the world? Well, it's this book of Acts that tells us. Starting with 120 believers in Jerusalem in chapter 1, they told other people about Jesus. They told him about how he was the promised Savior. They told them about how he had a perfect life, how he died a death that was in the place of sinners, and how he rose again from the dead to confirm that all of that was true. And those historical facts about Jesus were accompanied with a plea to repent of sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. And accompanying that plea was a promise that all who do that will find forgiveness of sins with God. And armed with nothing more than that message and the power of the Holy Spirit, the church grew. And in fact, on the first day of the church, we're told 3,000 people were added to their number in one day. And from Jerusalem, eventually, Jesus' followers were scattered, and everywhere they went, they told the same good news about Jesus, about God's grace, about God's love, and how it's all wrapped up in this one person, Jesus Christ. The book of Acts tells us as well that the early Christians faced challenges. They faced opposition. We have seen through the first 14, 15 chapters of this book, however, that the church kept on growing. One of the things that strikes me is how often the church had to adapt. You can imagine when something is growing from something small to something huge, some changes have to come along the way. With every new phase of God's growing mission, the needs and the challenges and the opportunities kept changing. So when the church grew too big for the 12 apostles to just be in control of absolutely everything, they needed to learn how to delegate responsibility to others. When the church became established in a new place, well then that church that was established had to then start to think about, well, how do we send the gospel from here to other new places? And it was that kind of readiness to adapt that led to the launch of the first overseas mission, where a church would deliberately send some of its members to go overseas and to tell people about Jesus, people who've never heard of him before. Up to this point, really, in the main, the church was really made up of people who were Jews, 
from a Jewish background. And when God expanded the mission to bring in those who weren't Jews, then here was a new phase of the life of the church. Tensions would arise. They had different backgrounds. They were sensitive to different things. And so it became all the more important to be really, really clear on what the Christian message was. Was it simply a call to people to become Jews? Like if you trusted in Jesus, did you have to stop having bacon rolls for breakfast? Did you need to be circumcised? These kind of things. Well, in Acts chapter 15, last week, we saw that the apostles were very clear. Faith in Jesus Christ is enough. That's all you need to be right with God. There's nothing that we can do that could contribute to this work of making a sinner right with God. Jesus has done everything. God saves by His grace, not by our merits or our law-keeping. And that clarity needed to be delivered to all of the churches in the non-Jewish world. And so a letter was written, and that letter shows up again in the passage that we read today. And so now, as we come to this uh, end of Acts 15 into Acts 16, we come to another new phase in the growth of the church. Paul and Barnabas, who were introduced to again here, they are the ones who completed the first mission, the first overseas mission. They had seen churches born in many of the cities and towns that they visited. And in fact, on their way back home from the mission, they revisited all of those cities and towns so that they might strengthen those new churches and help them to be established. So here they are. They've been to Jerusalem. They've got the letter that says you just need to have faith in Jesus. You don't need to be circumcised and obey food laws and things like that. So what now? What is the next phase in the mission of the church? What will this next phase of growth for the church look like? Well, today's passage shows us how God's mission breaks new ground. God's mission breaks new ground. Uh, We are cursed with a tendency to be fascinated with novelty. I mean, just think about how many different situations in life, phrases like, oh, I just feel like it's time for a change, or this is feeling a bit tired. How many different situations in life do you hear that kind of language used? We're just getting, we're getting fed up of this. We feel like we just need something new. Too much of the same thing tends to bore us. When the truth is, even if something hasn't changed for a long time, maybe it's not time for a change. In fact, maybe making a change for the sake of making a change could be the most disastrous thing you could do. Maybe you've been in a really stable job for a really long time and you're a bit bored with it and maybe it's time for a change, but you know what? It could be the most disastrous move you make. For the sake of a change, would you go to an insecure job? Well, what we see in this new phase of the mission of the church, the strategy that they, that they, they bring to this new phase is not one that assumes that something new is needed. 
Quite the opposite, in fact. So verse 36 of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas agree that it's a good idea to travel again and visit the churches they'd, been, they'd planted and to see how they're doing. And in particular, as you read through it, you see that the aim of the, that visit is to strengthen those churches. You see that verse 41 and also into chapter 16, verse 5. The aim is to strengthen the churches. This is exactly what they did the last time they visited those churches. If you were to go back into Acts chapter 13 and read, it's exactly the same thing. They said they went to the churches and they strengthened them. It's as if Paul and Barnabas and the church together had held a strategy session and concluded that they should do the same thing as before. And you know what? Sometimes that is the right answer. We're learning here that strengthening churches is the mission of the church. Strengthening churches is the mission of the church. Now, it's fair to say at the start of this new phase, things don't go smoothly. We're going to come back to that later. But here is the shared priority that Paul and Barnabas have. They want to see the church built up. And there's perhaps more strengthening of the church going on in this passage than we first realize. The first thing I want you to notice is to look at what the missionaries are armed with. What is it that they take with them on this phase of the mission? Uh, this book is written by a man called Luke. He records these events for us and he focuses on Paul and Silas. And the only thing that we are told that they carry with them in verse 4 of chapter 16 is the letter that was written from the church in Jerusalem. That letter was a reaffirmation of what the gospel is. Like if you were to just distill down what is the essence of this thing, it's a letter that says, just to be clear, everybody, this is what the gospel is. This is what you need to be saved. It said, we want you to understand the only thing you need to be right with God is Jesus Christ. But remember, to belong to Jesus is to enter into an exclusive relationship. So all of the things that marked out your old religious lifestyle, sexual immorality, eating food that's been sacrificed to the gods, these sorts of things have to go. You have a new master now. And so it's the reminder that your life will look different. All you need is Jesus, but when you have him, your life will look different. This is the message that will strengthen the churches. So I said to you when we last read of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, this is what it says, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here's the point I want to make. They did not enter into these cities of Derby, of Lystra, of Iconium. They didn't enter in there with money. They didn't enter into, the, into those cities with a novel program for growth. They came armed with something really quite simple, the Word of God. 
They came armed with the same gospel that they had preached in those cities years before. The same gospel that had saved them. It is this that's going to strengthen these churches. I think about the letters of the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, we have 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul, and they are written to different churches, sometimes written to individuals, and they all are facing unique challenges, some more severe than others. But here's the thing. In each of those 13 letters, regardless of the challenges that the Apostle Paul is writing to them to help them overcome, he has one thing in his armory, one basic tool that he uses in each and every one of those letters, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He understood that the church is strengthened as believers become more and more securely grounded in the good news about Jesus as they become more and more in awe of what God has done for them, then they are more and more strengthened in their faith and the church is built up. And the same principle applies to the church throughout the generations since. It is not a stretch to read these words and to read the message of Scripture and to say, if we as a church here in Bankery have any hopes of being strengthened in the Lord, if we have any aspirations of growing more and more into the fullness of what Jesus has called us to be, then this is inescapable. We must be strengthened in the gospel we need to be strengthened by the Word of God. Now, I said there's other strengthening of the church going on here that maybe we don't quite at first pick up. Because for all of their disagreements, Paul and Barnabas have a deep concern for the same thing. They want to see the churches strengthened, and one of the key things that will contribute to that is equipping and training new leaders. I mean, this is actually the source of division for these men at the start of our reading. Uh, we see in verse 37 that John, who was called Mark, is mentioned. He was introduced to us back in Acts chapter 13. He had initially joined with Paul and Barnabas on this first missionary expedition, but things hadn't worked out. We were only told that he had left them early on and headed back home. And Luke explains a little bit more here in verse 38. It says, um, he had withdrawn from them and had not gone with them to the work. Must have been hugely discouraging for the team of missionaries. Here they are taking this bold step to carry the good news of Jesus to new lands and early on in the mission, one of the team leaves them. But how discouraging for Mark. Here's a young man who loves the Lord Jesus and he wants to tell others about him. And the mission that he'd set out on, so full of, of hope and expectation, surely, it just didn't work out. 
and how easy it would be for him in reflecting on that to just give up, right? Not trying that again. Now, Barnabas, we find elsewhere in the New Testament, is Mark's cousin. So Barnabas knows him. And it's clear that Barnabas sees something in this young man, something that needs to be nurtured. He sees Mark and he says, look, here is someone who just needs the right environment to mature. But Paul looks on and he thinks, I don't want to go through all that disappointment again. He walked out on us once, we're not going to let him do it again. And so Paul and Barnabas fell out. We're told they had a sharp disagreement. And uh, a sharp disagreement that means that you go in opposite directions means you had a proper falling out. And so the one mission to strengthen the churches became two missions to strengthen the churches. And of course, we want to know, don't we, well, who was right and who was wrong? And like most situations in life, it's not always as straightforward as that, is it? There's a possibility that actually neither of the men were wrong. Because just think about it, a young man like John Mark, with the disappointment that he's had in ministry, it may well be that a a young man, as sensitive as he was perhaps, would really have struggled to regain confidence following the great Apostle Paul round. It actually turned out that Mark needed a season with Barnabas. If you've read the book of Acts, you'll remember that Barnabas wasn't actually his name, it was his nickname. It means son of encouragement. Mark needed a season with a son of encouragement. Whatever, Barnabas was right um, in what he saw in John Mark. And in fact, later on, Paul writes a letter to a friend of his and says, John Mark is with me. And he writes a letter to Timothy, in fact, the last letter of Paul's that we have. And he says to Timothy, bring Mark to me, because he's useful to me in the ministry. There truly was something in this young man, and it needed to be nurtured. It needed someone to invest in him, so that leaders would be raised up for the next generation. The splitting up of the missionaries And the rerouting of the mission landed Paul in the towns of Derby and Lystra. And there he encountered a young man by the name of Timothy. You see in verse 2 that the church in that area spoke well of Timothy. Elsewhere we read that it was indeed the church that had recognized the gifts that Timothy had from God. And they commissioned him to serve with the Apostle Paul. And for Paul, when he met Timothy, he wanted him to come with them. Now, why? Well, because Paul saw something in this young man, and he saw that the church needs to train the next generation of leaders. Later on, Paul would remind Timothy to do for others what he had done for him. Listen to this. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This was Paul's perspective on 
training leaders. He was to give to Timothy. Timothy was to give to others who could then give to others. You see four generations of equipping leaders for the church. And Timothy receives his first lesson in ministry. And it is about removing unnecessary distractions to the gospel. And there's something confusing for us here. Paul has Timothy circumcised, which seems so out of place, doesn't it? Chapter 15 was all about making it clear to non-Jewish believers that they don't need to become Jews. They don't need to get circumcised in order to be right with God. Paul was ready to die in a ditch over that point in chapter 15, and yet here in the very next chapter, he's circumcising Timothy. Well, the point here is actually that Timothy was not a non-Jew. His mother, we're told, was Jewish, which, strictly speaking, meant Timothy was a Jew as well. And Timothy had not fully complied with the Jewish law because his father wasn't Jewish. And so the problem that this creates for Timothy is not a spiritual problem. It does not hinder him being right with God. It does not hinder him having faith in Jesus. That's not the problem here. The problem it creates is how useful he can be as a witness to, to, to Jews. If he tries to preach the gospel to the Jews in that region, they know who he is. They know about his incomplete Judaism because of his father. And so here, Circumcision is not anything to do with being spiritually right with God, nothing at all. Instead, it's better to think of it like this. Paul sees this as a minor surgical procedure that would open up doors of opportunity to preach about Jesus. Simple as that. And Timothy himself became a valued leader in the early church, someone who grew in his love for God and in his love for God's people. Someone who Paul could say he knew he could trust Timothy to care for God's people. What a powerful thing that is to be able to say about someone. So here we're seeing that these men who were committed to strengthening the churches are committed to doing that by proclaiming the gospel and committed to doing that by training up leaders. And friends, this is the great need of the church in Scotland today. Not only for individual churches to be looking to see, well, where is the next generation of leaders coming from, but in Scotland as a whole, as parish churches in the big denominations vanish into extinction in the coming years, the need for a movement of church planting is what is needed. And, well, who is going to shepherd those churches? And who's going to invest in those shepherds to train them to lead those churches? It is only as churches invest in people to train them for ministry that these things happen at all. This is why we as a church last year took on a pastor in training and deliberately emphasizing that the role is, has a training component 
because we understand from Scripture that this is how the church is strengthened. And I think it's, it is on us, isn't it, to look at what else can we do? And if you remember perhaps coming to the AGM tomorrow, we'll be able to think through some more of what we might do. Strengthening churches. It's no exaggeration for me to stand here today and say this is why I'm here. This is why I'm here. Um, this, this church has been quite courageous in some ways um, because it has dared to say that the pattern for how the Lord has arranged his church in that he has given gifted individuals to the church and the reason he's done that is to equip God's people for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. When we read something like that in Ephesians 4, our conviction is that when, when, when God says that's what the church is to be like, then that's what we're going to do. Now, I'm serving here in this place as your pastor-teacher, and I've been put here to equip God's people for the work of ministry. And the only way I can do that is by teaching the gospel. Armed with the Word of God, that's, that's all I've got is God's Spirit using God's Word to build up the church. But of course, it's only effective when the readiness to minister the Word of God is met with a hunger to hear the Word of God. It is no good us as a church talking about strategies for growth if we are not doing the basics of what makes for our growth and for the spiritual growth of our church family. And so it remains my conviction that the greatest thing I can do for this church is to be a minister of the gospel. It's the greatest thing I can do. And so it helps us to see, doesn't it, that the reason why we have multiple opportunities for God's people to come together and to read God's Word together and to pray together is not because we want to simply make sure the pastor is kept busy, but because it is for our good. It's for our strengthening, for our building up. Having two services on a Sunday is a classic example, isn't it? We really don't have a Sunday evening service just so that I can work my hours. It is for the strengthening of the church. We don't have midweek Bible studies because we like to just, we like to make you feel guilty about how many things there are to come to. I promise that's not the reason. It is for our strengthening, for our building up, because this is the only way the church is built up, as God's people to read God's Word together, speak about God's Word together, live out God's Word together. I mean, tonight we're going to be thinking about why faith in Jesus is essential. Don't we want to be grounded deep in this stuff? It's the only way we grow. It's the only way we grow. Find ways to be feeding on the Word of God together. And I think that we are to see a pattern here that it is, as the church is strengthened in verse 5, strengthened in the faith, that they increased in numbers daily. It's only as we ourselves are being built up that we can have any hope of seeing God bless us 
in numerical growth. Now, we could very easily get carried away with ourselves, and maybe I already have. Um, We might just think that if we just engage in the right activities, set about with the right plan, then the success of the church is guaranteed. Well, thankfully, this passage of Scripture helps us to avoid that mistake as well. Because that's not how this period of the early church pans out, is it? There's a significant detail that we dare not miss. From the beginning of our studies in Acts, and I know that's going back a long way, it's actually going back to August last year, so I know that predates many of you being here. What we've seen is that the emphasis of the book is that this is the story of God's mission, being driven and directed by God himself. And this part of the mission is no different, is it? In fact, it's quite explicit. So Paul has a plan. Having strengthened the churches he's visited before, he wants to go into Asia. Um, Carl's going to show us, show us this. I, I usually really don't like putting maps up, but this will help you to see what's going on. So you can see the, the big bit in blue is the Mediterranean. You see Cyprus there. And so you see initially, um, let, let's go, let's see where the first arrows go. There we go. So he comes up through Syria and he heads up and that ends up in somewhere around about Lystra, Derby, that kind of place. And from there, here's where he wants to go. He makes a plan to head west to Ephesus. But the Spirit of God says, "Uh -uh, you're not going there. So Paul makes another plan, time to revise the plan. God's not letting us go that way. So he heads up north and he finds himself in Mysia. And from there, it seems really obvious to him to go north and east into Bithynia. But God's, the Spirit of Jesus says, no, you don't. And so Paul is getting the message, okay, he doesn't want me to go south and west. He doesn't want me to go north and east. So here's where we're going to go instead. Let's head west to Troas. And there at Troas, he has this vision in the night. A man of Macedonia appears to him and says, come on over cross the Aegean Sea and come over and help us. Thank you, that'll do for that. And it's funny that that having seen that vision in the night, we're told here that immediately, immediately, verse 10, they sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Like, it doesn't get any more explicit than this. Paul had made the plans, but who's directing this mission? God has directed them by closing certain doors and by making some doors very obvious that they should go through. God directs it here. And officially, the gospel comes to what we now call Europe for the first time. Of course, God's mission is about more than just geography. Uh, more, uh, the most fundamental part of the mission is proclaiming the message. It's about seeing people turn to Jesus. And we're introduced to the first convert in the European mission, a lady called Lydia. Paul usually started his mission in a new city by going to the synagogue And it seems from the way this is written, there's no synagogue in Philippi, which means there were fewer than 10 Jewish men in the city. This really is a new world for Paul. 
And so, where there are only a small handful of Jews, he thinks, well, they'll gather for prayer on the Sabbath at the river outside the city. And sure enough, he finds some God-fearing women who've gathered there to pray. And there was Lydia. There's lots we could say about her. She was clearly a businesswoman dealing in luxury clothing. But something happened to her that day, something more than just a preacher visiting. Look at who visited her in verse 14. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She heard and she believed Her heart was receptive to this message that Paul delivered. Her heart responded with faith and and conviction. She was able to say on this day that she really was a sinner who needed to be forgiven by God. She could really say on that day that she believed that Jesus Christ had died for sinners and rose again, and that she believed that he was her Savior. And she gave expression to that by being baptized. It says also that her household was baptized, and we're not actually told who was in her household. Um, The implication is that she was wealthy. She may have had servants. She may have been married, though I think the suggestion here is she wasn't. We don't know if she had children or not, and if she did, we don't know how old they were. And so we must be cautious about ever trying to build some doctrine of baptism on this statement on its own. No, it's far better for us to let the clearer parts of Scripture interpret the parts that are less clear. And in fact, the book of Acts is so helpful to us on this subject because we only read in the book of Acts explicitly of believers in Jesus Christ being baptized. The call is to believe and to be baptized. Faith, then baptism, is the gospel call in the book of Acts. And it's a gospel call that comes to every one of us today. However many times you've heard this message about Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners, there's something that needs to happen, isn't there? We see this in Lydia The Lord opens our heart. I don't know, maybe that's what's happening right here in front of me today. The Lord is opening hearts to see, actually, this this does describe who I am and where I stand before God and what I need from God. I need this Savior. Maybe he's even opening hearts today to say, I need to bear witness to my faith in Jesus by being baptized If the Lord speaks to you today, do not harden your heart. God's mission breaks new ground, and it does so using the plans, the initiatives, and even the fallings out of his missionaries. But we must never miss this. It is God who is directing it all. If God's people are going to engage in God's mission then they must be sensitive to his leading. 
they must be depending entirely upon his acting if this mission is going to go anywhere at all, and how valuable this is for us. We had a church meeting last Saturday to try and think through how we might take the mission of the gospel forward. What plans could we make for the advance of the gospel in this part of the world? And I think like the early church, it's right to plan. Sure, some of Paul's plans didn't work out, but had he never planned, he would still have been sitting in Antioch. He planned and he went and he waited for the Lord to show him. It is good to plan to take the gospel into Asia or to Bithynia, but it's most important to pray and to bring all our plans before the Lord because he might take us in another direction. So what is our plan? How do we formulate a plan? Where are we meeting people? Which doors do we think God is maybe opening for us to make Jesus known? Let's work together to make that plan and to step forward ambitiously for the gospel, to proclaim his words. But let him lead and let him save If ever there is a call here for God's people to be praying in dependence upon him, it's here as we read that actually for all of the giftings these missionaries had, without God's directing and God's acting, they would have got nowhere, nowhere at all. Not a single soul would have been saved on their mission. We need to pray that God would open hearts to see Jesus and to receive him. Amen.